Now, we have the wonderful Mike preaching this morning. Give him a hand as he comes up here. Thanks so much, David. Can we hear me okay? Nope. Nope. We all good? Brilliant. Brilliant. How is everybody? Good? You good? I've been around the world as well for a shortcut. The great land of Redding, California. Great land of Anfield Road. Been a brilliant, brilliant time. Right. <clears throat> Let's get stuck in here. Apologies if you hear me cough. There, there's this thing going around the, the, the common cold known as man flu. So I've got, I've got with me prepared, right? So I've got my water here. And I've got my chamomile with honey because it's the land flowing with milk and honey. And Okay. <laughs> Embarrassing. Well, the jokes don't get any better, I'm afraid. So there's a special holiday coming up. Um, for uh, my homeland. Many of you know about it. It's called Thanksgiving. There's a lot of excited people about Thanksgiving. Love it. Love it. Probably a lot of Americans here. So I've got some, I've got some uh, Thanksgiving jokes. I told him to Rihanna this morning, and she's like, please don't say any of them. Here we go. What does a limping turkey make? Wobble, wobble, wobble. <laughs> Which side of the turkey has the most feathers? The outside. <laughs> and finally, a new survey found that 80% of men claim they help cook Thanksgiving dinner, which makes sense when you consider that many of them say smel that smells good to be helping. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, I have the privilege of being in the middle of our, our series, God Has a Name. How's everyone enjoyed it? It's been, I've, had, I've had the opportunity to, to catch up on YouTube and on Facebook. If you haven't ca caught up on them, if you haven't caught up on any of those uh, messages, I encourage you to, to go find them. They're on Facebook. They're on YouTube. They're on podcasts. We make it as simple as possible. Uh, two weeks ago, Gary started our, our series off talking about the name Yahweh and why it's important for us to understand that God has a name and that there's something that's impactful with that. Last week, um, Mr. Ian Somerville did a lovely deep dive into the Hebrew. Anyone remember the two Hebrew words? Raham and Hanum. That's my wife shouting out the answers. Go on, you. So this morning, I'm afraid we're going to be going into a deeper dive. Um, so if, if you thought, oh, I've had so much Hebrew, I'm, I'm, I'm good for, that's good for me for a while. Um, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, because there's more Hebrew to come. <laughs> so there's stuff going on, and <clears throat> the way I want to kind of describe the, the sermon series, um, and the way we've kind of orchestrated this and put this together, um, it, and I kind of describe it at this, there's a lot of times that the Lord, when he speaks to us, he, he can speak in this overarching pattern. I, I look, I talk, call it the, you know, 3,000 feet above uh, sea level kind of view a uh, few weeks back, I was in a helicopter ride over um, up around Londonderry direction, and and there's something you get a perspective switch when you're when you're out and you're seeing over the landscape, and it, it's quite it's quite eerie, it's quite funny because it's really easy to to worship and just be in awe of how good God is and, and the creation that's about. But there's another way that the Lord likes to speak to us, and it's to be honest with you, it's probably the most unpopular for most people in the Western world, 
it's this. It's when God says, I want you to sit here, stay here, and I want you to look at this aspect of me, and I don't want you to move. How long, Lord? Don't move. 20 minutes goes by. How long, Lord? Don't move. And it's like trying to keep a toddler down. I remember I was in Bible college, and we had a professor that did this exercise with us. He gave us a portion of scripture. I'll say it was like two sentences. It was long enough ago. I sadly don't remember the passage, but we sat there, and he said, right, I want you to read that passage. I don't want you to read anything else. I want you to talk to the Lord. I want you to write down everything you have. We're like, okay, cool. You know, that'll work. That'll work for a few few minutes. You know, nice little opener. Get us ready, thinking about theology and all that. 45 minutes sitting there. We all looked around like, is, is this for real? I'll tell you, there is something that the Lord speaks when we sit and we listen, but we don't move. And we just dive in deep. And so we're going to do that a bit again this morning. Again, sorry, not sorry. Um, you'll, you'll hear this passage at least another week. I know uh, Richard's speaking next week. He'll, he'll go in a bit farther. But we're in Exodus 34. And if you have your Bibles, you want to pull to them. I, I've got my Henny Banner Bible here. Uh, whatever way you, you want to view, whatever translation, it doesn't matter. Because to be honest with you, we're going to be looking at the Hebrew. So all the translations have, have different ways we talk about it and stuff. And so we'll, we'll get into it. But Exodus 34, we'll start here in verse 5. And it says this. Then Yahweh... Everyone say Yahweh. See, it says the Lord, but we've learned, if you've been here the last couple weeks, Yahweh. So then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then Yahweh said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, Yahweh, will do for you. And we're going to be focusing today on Exodus and verse 36. Last week, Ian sat there and he chatted through the word compassionate and graciousness, the, the, the attributes that God gives to himself. Remember, this is the first time in scripture that we see God, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, come and say, this is who I am. So it's probably pretty important that we get this, don't you think? Because a lot of times the danger is, is that we take God and we create God in our image. We don't even realize that we do it. But the Lord is calling us constantly back. There's a movement going on right now where the Lord continually calling back his bride to him and saying, this is what, who I am. This is what I look like. These are my attributes. Pay no attention to anything else. This is who I am. And so we're going to be looking at the next passage, the next part of the passage here. God is slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. Say love and faithfulness. We're going to be breaking those down. We're going to be diving into a bit of, of Hebrew. So if everyone wants to do some vocal warm-ups, because some of these languages, things are, are awful. I, I also, like Mr. Somerville before me, will admit I am by no means a Hebrew scholar. I just know how to use Google. 
I know how to use Blue Letter Bible. I know how to use some of the resources. But ultimately, I had to spend a lot of time dumping in and trying to dig this. And, and the, best, the best resource for trying to figure out how to say these words is YouTube. So if you were to search my YouTube history, it's thousands of, of these weird words. And you'd be like, what? And it's usually somebody who's not English teaching you Hebrew because we, we just have a really hard time with it. So we're going to look at the, the word abounding in love. And this word is one word, and it's pronounced chesed. Say, try to say that with me. Chesed. Now with a bit more phlegm. Chesed. Right. And when we translate this word chesed, we, we see that it comes out. You'll see it all over the Bible. Usually translates as steadfast love. Usually translates as, as unfailing love, abounding love in this passage. And covenant loyalty. It's this, it's this sweeping view of, of, of a love that is God's love towards his people. And here's the problem. And if you haven't learned this by now, you'll, you're, you'll soon get it. That our translations in English are so limited and so lacking in some of these areas. There's times that the Hebrew scholars write something and we try to put it in the best way we can. Because we don't have a, a word that could take up the room of what this Hebrew word hesed means. This is what it means. It means covenant love. Everyone say covenant. covenant. Now when you, know, when you hear the word covenant, most of you would probably go and think the, the only time we ever would use that term in our society would be a wedding, right? So um, you think of covenant, you think of a marriage covenant, you think of the, the I do's, you know, the... I remember standing there at the aisle waiting, waiting for my beautiful bride, Rihanna, who she hates me mentioning her name, by the way, Tim, because it embarrasses her. But I do it anyway. That's the kind of loving husband I am. Um, and I remember standing there and, and waiting uh, for her to come down the aisle. And she comes down the aisle. There's a beautiful picture that captured this. And I'm like, <laughs> just the sodden, sad tears on this. John doesn't, won't lie, he won't lie to you. He was a bit, he was a bit sad too. There was a bit of te lovely tears in his eyes. And we were sitting there trying to gather ourselves together, go through the whole, the whole I do's part. But most of you kind of understand that when we go through the I do's, like that's, that's a covenant. It's, it's, a, it's a promise that my life is no longer my own. Her life is no longer her own. Our life is together. My life is no longer my own. I don't get to just sign off on anything, anything I want to do. It's not about me any longer. It's a commitment before God, before our peers, before our family, before our friends that says, no, 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 I choose to be with you and I will stay in this relationship with you no matter what. For rich or for poor, as the Northern Irish say. And this is probably the closest understanding we get of covenant. But in the ancient Near East, when, the, when this passage is set, this understanding of covenant was more than just a marriage. This understanding of covenant was usually between two parties. Many times what we get, and historians will record, between kingdoms, between kings. But a covenant could be between anyone. So it could be between your neighbor. What the, the fact of the matter is, is that a covenant was kind of this hybrid of a relationship between someone with a legal bet. And there were rules to these covenants. And if you were to take time and study and go through all, there's all different types of covenants and all different times. 
But the point of the, ma- the fact of the matter is, is that a covenant was a relationship where we said, no, 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 that you and I get these benefits from something. However, we must do this, and the other party must do this to adhere to this covenant. And there were serious consequences if that covenant were to break. Do you want to take a moment, cha- go into your Bibles, in Genesis 12, we're going to look at the first time that we really see this, this word covenant kind of play out. And it's actually a perfect understand. It's a perfect picture of what Yahweh is saying in here when he's talking about covenant love. Many of you know the story of Abraham. Maybe you're probably familiar with it. For those of you who don't know or just need a little refresher course, I'll give you the really, really quick version of it. See, God knew that the world was messed up. God, this didn't take God by surprise. Sin entered the world. God, since before day one, had a plan to redeem the world to himself, to bring heaven to earth. But the vehicle that he chose to do that was through family. Let that settle for a second. The vehicle that God has always chosen to use since the beginning of time to bring heaven to earth is family. And so God chooses a family. He chooses Abram and Sarah, pensioners, a bit old in age, about 75, I believe, Abraham is when, uh, when God comes up to speak to him. And this is what he starts with. He tells Abram to go on and to leave the home that he's in. And he says to Abram, I, this is God speaking to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing, and I will bless those who curse you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And this is the important part. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, those of you who kind of understand the the Bible in this this narrative, this overarching story and theme that carries throughout Scripture, understand that Abraham is the forefather of of the Israelites, which is actually the line and lineage of how Jesus comes into play. So this is, we're talking thousands of years before Jesus steps foot on on the earth. Abraham is here and God is going, I choose you, Abraham, and your family. But here's the problem. Abraham and Sarah can't have children. God, how are you going to bless the whole world with a a family that has infertility issues? How's that going to work? Take a step back for a second, because there's a principle and understanding here that you need to gather. This is how God sets up love in his kingdom, right? God chooses to love us, usually through family, but God chooses to love us. We, because we see that God loves us, have the ability then to love other people, who then, in kind, turn their attention and love towards Jesus or to God. That's why the Bible, when Jesus is talking, he says, my kindness, my kindness will lead them to repentance. Not bashing their heads with anything, but my kindness, my love, my direction. So God picks Abraham. He, he tells him that, <coughs> excuse me, he tells him, I will, I will bless you. Your family will be a blessing to other nations. I have a plan for you. And so Abraham takes God up on it, goes, okay, I'll trust you. The Bible says that, that it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. We don't have time to unpack that, but know that in that moment, Abraham said, okay, God, 
I'm game. I'm, I'm with this plan for you. And then God takes Abraham on this journey. It involves moving, separating land out, all this sort of thing. And we fast forward here in Genesis 15. And this is where it gets interesting. Because it's been a few years, and Abraham sits there before the Lord and goes, God, what's with this promise? You said you would do this, but my wife and I still can't get pregnant. What's up with that? He's not sitting there going, I don't trust you. He's going, God, why? It's interesting, the Lord's response. The Lord says to him, you can read it here, verse 9 we are, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram bought all these, brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then Yahweh said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And this is where it gets interesting. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergeshites, and the Jebusites. Mouthful. Has anyone ever read that passage before and gone, what on earth is going on? Just me? That's okay. But I remember reading this passage and going, like, did I miss something here? It's just so nonchalantly talked about. Here's what's happening. One aspect about covenant that you need to understand in, in the ancient world was particular in certain covenants. Two parties would bring livestock, as is brought here. They would set them before one another. They would cut them in half, literally cut, physically cut them in half, and put one side on one end and one side on the other, and made this pathway of blood, gore, dismemberment. It wasn't a pretty sight. This wasn't a beautiful ceremony at this point. And what would happen is both parties would walk straight through the line. And what it signified was this. If myself and the other partner are walking through, if I break the boundaries of the covenant, if I break those rules that we've set before everybody here, then what has happened to these animals shall happen to me. The dismemberment, the gore, all of it kind of slightly one-ups a pinky promise. <laughs> Just a little bit. So Abraham does what God says. Abraham goes, God, why are you doing this? You keep saying you're going to give us land, you're going to give us family, but there's nothing here. And God goes, okay, go bring the goats, the, the birds, cut them in two. Abraham already knows what's happening. He's, he's making a covenant. This isn't, this isn't something new to him. And just as he's about to walk through this, 
with the presence of the Lord. He falls asleep. Think God had something to do with that? And as he falls asleep, the Bible says a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared through. Many of you know the Exodus story. The presence of God frees the Israelites, takes them out of Egypt. And how are they led? A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What is God saying in this moment? He's saying, Abraham, the promise that I have set before you is only conditional on me. Let me say that again. The promises that I have laid out before you, the covenant that I have said that you will bless people, that people will be blessed by you, relies on me. God doesn't require Abram to go through that. Why? Because first of all, Abram will never be able to fulfill that covenant. In fact, this is going on, this whole passage in Exodus, just before that, the Israelites are making a golden calf and worshiping God because they're impatient. It's like God trying to marry his people and they're having an affair there while, while he's walking down, getting ready for the, for the bride to walk down the aisle. And yet God still says in this moment, it is on me. The love that I have is not dependent on you. This is before Jesus too, by the way, where we see this come into full effect. This was the most powerful symbol that God could ever conjure up for Abram. But this promise still stands today and what it means for us. Because when God says, I am abounding in love, I am chesed, what he's saying is that my love knows no bounds. It's not predicated or dictated by what you do or what you have done or how you will act in the future. I continually choose and will continually choose to go after you. And this is the beginning of this beautiful thing. By the way, abounding love, as it says, mentioned all over scripture, it's also mentioned in the next part of this passage. So God like, wanted to make this abundantly clear. As we learned last week, God's basis for how he interacts with his people is mercy. But his choice is always love towards us, no matter what we do. Now, you can very easily get into a point where you sit there, and we're all fault for this, where you go, ah, Jesus' love covers me, so why does it matter? Do whatever I like. Then you miss the point. Because the fact of the matter is, as, as has been said here before, we so often deserve to be walking through those carcasses. And the Lord said, no, no. Because I will not allow anything to stand in the way between me and my bride, between me and the people that I love, between me and the people that I've chosen. The only thing that's in the way is you. We find this, this understanding of abounding love a couple more times that are worth mentioning. <clears throat> Remember this guy, Nehemiah, who is building the wall in Jerusalem? This is what he prays in the middle of that whole debacle. He goes, God, you're forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and 
abounding in love. Hesed. Psalm 89. I will sing of the graciousness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make your faithfulness known with my mouth. I will make your hesed known with my mouth. See, it's more than just God loves you, great feelings. It actually has very little to do with emotion. It's God's choice to go, I'm moving towards you no matter what you do. You can't run away from me. So when we hide and we allow shame and we allow guilt and we allow things to stop that interaction between us and God, that's on us, not on the Lord. Because the Lord is always choosing to go after us. He made this abundantly clear from day one. How are we doing? Okay? We got one word. We got one word left to go. And it's just as important. Exodus 34, 6. Passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, hesed, and faithfulness. Say faithfulness. Faithfulness. Our second and final word is emet. Say emet. And we get this translated all the time as faithfulness. But as is predicated, it means so much more than just faithfulness. Emet, emet literally means truth. It's connected to the word that we use all the time. Amen. So should it be. Isn't it interesting that thousands of years ago, God wanted to make sure that, he understood, that we understood that he's full of a covenant love, never failing love, that never runs out, will always choose to go towards us, no matter what messes or things we have, and is full of truth. Truth's a funny thing, especially in the day and age that we live in. How many of you heard the phrase, my truth, that's going about? Well, that's just my truth, man. I was in California too much. That was just my truth, bro. <laughs> There's a world out there that is grappling and fighting to grab hold of what is this word truth. And they've gotten to a point, <coughs> excuse me, they've gotten to a point where, quite honestly, they've just kind of given up altogether and said, oh, no, it's just relative. It's my truth. It's your truth. It could be our truth. Whatever truth is out there. And I want to ask you a question. What is truth? I need to scan the audience because I want to tell, tell the story and make sure that no kids are in the room because I don't want to spoil the Christmas holidays. But uh, when I was a kid, I was five years old. My mother remembers. She tells me the story quite, quite a lot. Has, has a laugh. The others are listening. That's okay. I wanted to find out an aspect about Christmas. If you don't know, you can come chat to me afterwards. At five years old, in the middle of July, in the middle of a shopping mall. It's funny how kids' brains work. And I remember asking my mom, Mom, what about this? And she kind of was, at that, you're at that age, or she, you know, for us, for, for kids, it was a big deal. This aspect about Christmas was a big deal for them. Um, so they didn't want <clears throat> to ruin it. So she kind of sheepishly looked at me. And she said, she'll never forget it. She said, I stamped my foot. I said, Mom, I want the truth. Some of you are laughing because you know me enough. It's like, yeah, Mike would do that. Making a scene in the middle of JCPenney's in mid-July over Christmas. 
And she eventually told me. And my response, she said, she said, you looked at me and went, oh, okay. Just carried on. And that was how it went with me. And I remember thinking about the story, coming back to it. And I've had conversations with friends since and people, my peers, and we are always fascinated with what is the truth. We live in a day and an age where everything's on our phones, we can have access to everything. Doesn't mean it's the truth, just we have access to everything. And it just makes it more befuddled and confusing. Can I tell you, as a five-year-old, my truth was what my mother said. Why was that? This is the other element of this word. Because my mom is trustworthy. Truth does not necessarily just mean a black and white, right or wrong, at least not in the context of, a met of what God is saying to his people. What he's saying in truth is he's saying, I am trustworthy. Look at the span of my life. I'm consistent. I'm trustworthy. And the day in an age where we live, there are people here that desperately need to know who Jesus is. Not so he can sort them out and smack them over the head with a Bible or the cross. Because they need to take one look at him to realize that he's trustworthy. That he is safe. That the kingdom of God is all in his eyes. And that's what needs to happen in the day that we live in. The world needs to hear this message and we need to be reminded that Yahweh is truth because he's trustworthy. One other fun fact about this word, and that this is for those of you who really like to nerd out like myself and Ian Somerville and look at all like the, the way the word works. So in the Hebrew language, it's all, all consonants. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's all consonants. The word emet concises, concises, concises? That's not right, but we'll say it anyway. <laughs> Somebody's trying to whisper to help me out, but it's okay. I'll mess it up and be happy with it. The word emet has the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet with the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. What does it mean? It means that God is the truth and it encompasses all of creation, everything that you could ever imagine or take is found in him. Everything. Why does this happen? Why does that happen? I, I don't know. I've gotten really good at over the years of when people try to like come stump you with theological deep questions. I'm really good at going, I don't know, but have you met Jesus? I don't know, but have you met the Holy Spirit? Because it's really funny what ends up happening. The questions that people thought they have aren't really the questions that they have, and the questions that they really have, the Holy Spirit already knows and is sorting that. But some of us like to fight with people on Facebook, have theological back and forth with people. I don't think I've ever started that because I didn't see the point. I want people to see who Jesus is. However that, that comes about is grand, but generally it's probably not from you telling them how you're right and they're wrong. So that's our Hebrew lesson. And to put this all nicely up in a nice bow tie, because I, I am very much a person, like I like things nice and neat. In my household, my, my wife is the one who cleans. 
I am the one who tidies. I am terrible at cleaning. Terrible at cleaning. If I have to clean, Brianna just has to go and clean it again. I am fantastic at tidying. My wife can be fantastic at tidying when she wants to be. See what I did there? <laughs> when she wants to be. Husbands, take note. But it all comes together in this. Exodus 34, 6. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness. We can't see this, but what's happening here? Much like what happened last week. God is taking two nouns and he's slamming them together and making one word. And for you and I in the English language, it would just mean, oh, it just means that and that, just really closely linked. That's not what he's talking about in Hebrew. What he is saying is he is chesed because he is emet. And he is emet because he is chesed. What do I mean? His covenant love and faithfulness is because he is truth. It's played out in his truth and his trustworthiness. And he, his truth and his trustworthiness is because he is faithful and loving and covenant. If you think about it too hard, your brain will melt. But that's how God is. It's a mixture of everything. If I could have the worship team. Where does this leave us this morning? Because it's really good to have head knowledge. It is. It's not a bad thing to read your Bible, to want to go deep and understand theological concepts and take a little pick at some Hebrew and learn that. And you might walk away from this going, oh, that was great. You know, that was really, really good. I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot. As I was prepping this message, many of you know, I, we, Rand and I went on with John to, to Bethel, to Reading for the first time. And I remember sitting, sitting in the living room, we're getting packed up, we're getting ready to go, I'm you know, putting my stuff together, lastminute.com, which is my usual, Brianna's packed two weeks ahead of time, um, suitcases literally closed, zipped up, front door, you, you trip on it on your way in the house, um, my stuff's not even out of my drawers yet. In fact, it's, it's actually, that's not even true, it's not even in the washing machine to be washed, to be put away, that's, that's, that's me. So I'm sitting there pulling my stuff out of the dryer when the Holy Spirit hits me with an uppercut. Maybe you've had these before. Ever been rebuked by the Holy Spirit? It's really good fun. This is what he said. He said, Mike, you've lost your wonder for me. I said, what? He said, Mike, you've lost your wonder for me. And I got defensive. Me and the Lord, I got defensive. I said, Lord, what are you talking about? Like, I'm serving a church. I'm getting ready to preach your word. I'm, you know, I'm going to, to Redding, California, to the Mecca. Just joking. It's not. I know that's going to be cut into some YouTube slice, and we're going to be putting that out. Sorry, everybody. That's all right. What do you mean? And the Lord said, I want you to go 
to California, and I want you to watch. Okay, I can do that. I'm really good at doing that. Scrum. So I want you to go, and I want you to watch. So I did. I went, and I watched. We, I can't even tell you how many worship sets we sat in, what, 12, 15, something like that. Like, you, you lose track. And it's not bad. I don't, I'm not dogging it. I'm just saying it, it's just, it's so much that you can, everything mixes together. And I remember sitting there and watching, um, watching something, and the Lord said, I want you to look at the people. Because the funny thing is, when you look at churches and when you're in church leadership, you can really easily go there and say, oh, I like how they do that. I'm not sure how they do that. I like how they do that. I'm not sure how they do that. Ooh, there's a TT dealing waiting to happen. Ooh, I'm not sure about that. And it's really easy to get in that headspace. And, and I do, let's be honest, I do. However, I sat here and the Lord said to me, he said, the only takeaway I want you to take away from this week, if you get anything else, is this. The wonder comes when people are hungry. When people are hungry. Can I tell you what I saw? I saw every single night. It didn't matter if it was BSSM students. It didn't matter if it was uh, people going to church service. It didn't matter if it was pastors at a leaders advance conference. Every night there were people who were crying out. They were desperate, desperate to see God. Desperate. Some of them coming from long and far. No other options. Wanting to see Jesus. They're desperate for a look at God. And the Lord spoke to me again. He said, the, the hunger that comes from people, the hunger that you have, will be the vehicle by which I will show you my wonder and I will show you my glory. So we can read about Exodus all we like. We can read about what the stories of what God has done to our forefathers, how he reveals himself to us. But how we respond changes everything. Because we have an option. <coughs> we can sit here and say that's a lovely sermon or we, it can inspire us to go, no, 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 I want that. I want to see what Jesus really looks like. Can I tell you something? As someone who has seen what Jesus looks like, it's terrifying, it will change your life. It is not comfortable. It is not safe. It is pure holiness. But where the Lord is taking his church and his bride, we are called as a prototypical wedding, we are called as the bride to reveal and mimic the nature of our groom. We are called to look and feel like Jesus. Do you wanna know what truth is? You need to come find Jesus. You wanna see and feel and understand what love looks like? You need to go, I don't feel like it, God. It doesn't have anything to do with feelings. I choose, I'm, I'm coming today, I want this. I want what you have, Jesus, because nothing else compares. Nothing else comes close. And watch what happens when God lights you on fire. Because it doesn't, it doesn't just change you for a day or for a week. It changes your whole trajectory of where you're going. It changes your family's life. Remember, God uses family as the vehicle. You want to see family change? I want to see moms and dads come and meet the Holy Spirit. That'll change it real quick. You want to see policies and politics and all that stuff change? I don't really care. I just want the Holy Spirit to come and reign. That'll sort everything else out. 
We, we somehow thought and lost long ago, thought we had the answer to everything. We don't. So this is what I want us to do. Can we all stand? And it's a simple invitation. Firstly, if you're somebody here who maybe you've come and you've gone, do you know what? I know about Jesus, or maybe I haven't. Maybe this is your first time in a church like this. Maybe it's your first time going. I've never heard this before, but I want to meet who Jesus is. I want to lead you in an opportunity to accept him. And this is what that looks like. It's really simple. It's going, Jesus, I want you, only you, and I give you my life, and I'll follow whatever you say. That's it. Simple. It doesn't even, it's not a magic word. It's you going, no, 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 Jesus, this is who I am. Jesus came on the earth, and John was writing about Jesus, kind of after the fact, after Jesus was moving about. And he said, this man was full of grace and full of truth. Many of you have heard this. It's a translation of a translation of a translation. It's Exodus 34. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus is trustworthy. He's emet. He's hesed. He is full of love. And he is everything. So I suppose the, the ultimate goal of this sermon is simply this. Jesus is here. How hungry are you to meet him? How hungry are you to touch him? How hungry are you to hear what he has to say? And this is all, all, I, all I challenge you with. And I'll be the first one down here. If you're hungry, what will it cost you? And are you willing to throw that cost and say, I don't care what people look like or say? There is a free space here. I haven't called up a prayer team. I haven't called up anything because this is something that needs to happen within our church, within our body, where we go, I will be the bridegroom that reflects my beautiful Jesus. And I will watch as he sets me on fire so the whole world will see it. So they will know of the unfailing love. They will know that he is truth and he is trust in his eyes. They will know that he can break the sicknesses and diseases that run rampant in our world, in our society, in our mindsets, in our bodies. I want him. So this is the simple invitation. If you want him, come get him. Come out of your seat. Have a kneel down here. Do some business with the Lord. Because when we move forward in hunger, that's when wonder comes. So Jesus, we worship you in this morning. We worship you in this place and we say, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you move? Would you light your bride on fire again? Would we recapture the wonder that we once had for who you are, for your beauty, for your grace, for your love, your love that's unfailing no matter what we do. We come and we say, Lord, we repent and we turn towards you and we say, Jesus, come and move and do what you wanna do. It's your agenda, it's your ball game. You're the King of Kings, you're my Lord of Lords. You're my everything. And as our forefathers did, as Moses did on the mountain, as Peter, John, and Paul, and the disciples, and thousands of giants in the face have gone before, we say, Jesus, we worship you. Because you are everything.